Welcome to The Insight, your gateway to in-depth discussions on the pivotal issues shaping our global landscape. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. In today's episode, our focus turns to the recent inauguration of the Ayodhya Temple in India and the profound implication it holds, especially for religious minorities with the spotlight on the Muslim community. Now, in the wake of the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's inauguration of the Ram Temple, constructed on the ruins of the 16th century Babri Mosque, disturbing reports have emerged. Hindu ex- Extremist violence against Muslims and Christians has been condemned by the Indian American Muslim Council, citing the weaponization of celebrations by extremist groups. Massive processions have been convened, resulting in attacks on Muslims and the destruction of Muslim-owned businesses, homes and mosques. The IAMC has raised the alarm, urging international human rights organizations and civil society groups to take note of the deteriorating situation in India, which they fear could escalate into a full-blown Muslim and Christian genocide. Additionally, the IAMC has called upon the U.S. State Department to intervene, requesting the Indian government to cease exacerbating anti-Muslim sentiment, hold Hindu extremists accountable and heed the recommendations of the United States Commission for International Religious Freedom to designate India as a country of particular concern. Joining us for the conversation is Safa Ahmed, the Associate Director of Media and Communications at the Indian American Muslim Council. She'll delve into the historical context surrounding the inauguration and Unravel the current tensions and explore the far-reaching impact on India's intricate social fabric. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Safa, welcome to the show. Waalaikum salam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you for having me on. So we're talking about the um, the Ayodhya Temple or the Ram Temple that was inaugurated and its impact, particularly on the Muslim community um, in South Africa and even um, you know around the world as well. Now, with that inauguration of the temple, it stirred up quite a bit of emotion across India. Can you provide maybe some insight, firstly, into the historical background of the Ayodhya controversy and then the impact on religious relations in the country? Sure. So in order to start uh, with the history, we have to go back a couple hundred years. So the Babri Mosque um, in Ayodhya city was constructed by the Mughal Muslim emperor Babur uh, in the 1500s. And the mosque remained there, of course, for hundreds of years uh, through the Mughal rule, uh, through the British colonization period. Uh, But you don't really see signs of... um, or at least not major signs of conflict over the mosque until around the 1800s, when there starts to be this agitation uh, from claims from the Hindu community saying that the mosque was built on the exact birthplace of the deity Ram. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, these claims don't get much more traction until around the uh, late um, 1990s, uh, or excuse me, the early 1990s, um, so these claims don't start getting uh, more traction until like the, uh, you know, the 20, uh, 21st century. Uh, and this movement uh, comes into play. It's called the Ram, Ram Janam Bhumi uh, movement, mm. uh, basically mainstreaming these claims that that place where the mosque was built was where uh, the deity Ram was born. And there is this political party in India called the Bharatiya Janta Party. Um, and this party, they jumped uh, full force behind this movement. Um, and they actually rode this movement up to uh, great popularity in India uh, in the 1990s. And so 
the BJP, uh, as your viewers might know, is currently the ruling party in India. They actually gained a lot of power by claiming that, yes, this mosque uh, needs to be demolished and a temple needs to be built there. And of course, in 1992, this uh, movement gained so much traction among uh, specifically Hindu militant groups, yes. which the BJP uh, to this day re uh, retains links with. Um, groups like the Vish Hindu Parishad, uh, groups like the Badrang Dal, groups like the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, um, all of these are major uh, Hindu paramilitary groups in India uh, that have uh, quite long histories of supporting Hindu nationalism or Hindu supremacy or Hindutva. Um, and all this is linked, of course, to uh, this idea of historic Hindu glory in India, uh, which is where a lot of this uh, fuel for the argument that the Babri Mosque was built um, on a demolished Hindu site comes from. It's this... Uh, it's built off this claim that we need to take back uh, what the Muslims took from us. Um, and of course, this is like a very, uh, it's, a, it's a very distorted claim, and I'll go into uh -huh. why in a bit. But essentially, uh, the BJP is at the forefront of this mob that gathers um, around 150,000 people, uh, specifically militants, who go towards that mosque in uh, 1992 in December, and they demolish it. Um, and it's a violent demolition. They descend on the mosque with hammers, with tridents, they tear it down. Um, and after that, they unleash violence on the surrounding Muslim neighborhoods. Uh, so there are several houses that are attacked. There are neighborhoods that are burned. Uh, there are people who are killed. And this uh, sparks violence all over the country where uh, Muslims are attacked, killed, and other mosques are destroyed. Um, and that's what happens in 1992. From there, uh, there is a long dispute over what do we do with this land now? And that dispute was, you know, there was fuel poured on it. Uh, the BJP came to power in 20, uh, 2014. And from there, they actually campaigned on promises that we will build a temple to Ram on the land where the Babri Mosque stood. Uh, they were not able to do that until the uh, Supreme Court of India in 2019 passed a verdict. Uh, this verdict is extremely controversial for a few reasons. Uh, but the primary thing that came from that is that the Supreme Court ruled that the Babri Mosque demolition was wholly illegal. They also ruled that there was no evidence that a temple had been demolished for the purpose of constructing a mosque on top of it. But despite that, they awarded the land of the Babri Mosque to Hindus. And so the Hindu right took that as a major victory. And that's what's led to the uh, unfortunate... Uh, politicization um, and the Hindu supremacist uh, celebrations that surround the construction and now the inauguration of the temple in Ayodhya. Mm. Now, Prime Minister Narendra Modi at that inauguration emphasized faith over aggression. How do you interpret his remarks looking at the history of the BJP, looking at his history as well, and considering the concerns raised by Muslim communities and the history of communal violence in India? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, Prime Minister Modi's words are just words. Um, it, what's more important is that you look at the words of what his party is saying yes. and the actions that they've triggered over uh, the past several years. Um, so Modi is saying show faith, not aggression, but he's never had a single word to say about the aggression showed by the many uh, powerful Hindu militant groups that carry out uh, daily hate crimes. So uh, if you look at any uh, Indian news portal, um, 
not the ones, of course, that are uh, explicitly linked to the BJP, uh, but the ones that are actually covering the news and international news portals as well. You'll see that every single day there is a report of some Muslim being uh, the victim of a mob attack. Um, unfortunately, there it is extremely common to see reports of mob lynching. So Muslim men uh, literally killed uh, for no crime other than being Muslim men or, you know, under allegations that they were involved in like slaughtering or smuggling cattle. Yes. Uh, there are cases of mosques uh, being the subject of uh, intimidation where you'll see uh, mobs of uh, Hindu supremacists taking loudspeakers, playing genocidal pop music, dancing in front of the mosques. Um, you'll see people threatening uh, Muslim minors. Um, you'll see reports of hate speech from the most powerful politicians within the BJP uh, to the local leaders of Hindu militant groups. So it's an extremely widespread problem where this Hindu supremacist mindset has become the mainstream. The violence has become the mainstream and Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, is fine with that. He's fine with it because he's never said anything to condemn it. Um, and so when uh, the BJP talks about the Babri Masjid, that's where it's important to listen. Uh, the BJP has had a long history of actually flaunting the Babri Mosque demolition um, in front of Muslims, actually using it as a threat. So uh, Yogi Adityanath, he is the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh and he's a close ally of Modi. Mm -hmm. uh, just a few months ago, he was uh, at an election rally. And of course, elections are going to be important. They're coming up uh, this year. Yes. So in this election rally, he's telling his supporters, oh, you know, the BJP, uh, essentially he's he's bragging about the BJP's involvement in uh, the Babri Masjid demolition. He said, we marched there. Um, and now do you doubt that today there is a temple being built at Ayodhya? Um, so basically bragging, saying like, hey, we yes. got the job done. And there's another BJP leader uh, in, Karnat in Karnataka state. Um, I, what is his name? Anand Kumar Hegde, I believe. Um, he, uh, he actually stated that... Uh, we need to take revenge for the past 1,000 years of Muslim rule. Wow. Um, and he believed that his revenge would be taken by demolishing all the mosques uh, that were built in that time frame. Uh, he also stated that there is another mosque in Karnataka that he referred to, and he said, just like how the Babri Mosque was demolished, the, the demolition of this mosque is also a guarantee. There's another BJP leader, I could go on with examples, but mm. he actually was at a rally where he said... Um, uh, Muslims used to have fun in the name of Babri Mosque too. Don't have fun in front of us anymore. Uh, so these are very explicit threats of violence towards Muslims. And it actually reveals the core of what the Ram Temple in Ayodhya stands for. Um, it's not, to these people, it's not really about religion. The religion is a veneer to cover the fact that, hey, this is actually about expressing Hindu dominance. It's about creating a Hindu ethno state. It's about declaring Muslims to be subservient. It's about threatening them. It's about uh, normalizing the violence against them. Mm. You've mentioned the lynching, but we've also seen young Muslim students. I mean, there was a video of a teacher, um, you know, slapping a seven-year-old Muslim classmate. And just mm -hmm. this, you know, disturbing video um, that shows the religious discrimination and how perversive uh, this discrimination is in contemporary India. And what role does the government play in addressing these issues? Because um, we've seen them take action, but um, that was it. And this is, a, you know, a daily mm -hmm. thing. It happens all the time and particularly to Muslims. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So the government, uh, when it comes to taking action against these types of incidents, which are 
horrifying and much more common than is being reported. Uh, it's really when uh, things go viral. So that story that you mentioned, it was actually picked up by CNN, the BBC, um, and it got international attention. That was when, you know, there was uh, inquiries and whatnot, uh, some sort of Meth, uh, method of holding the teacher accountable that was put in place. But unfortunately, uh, what we're seeing is that for the most part, there are a lot of stories that do come out, come out of India like this. Um, and what has become the norm instead is impunity because there is just so much hate speech. Um, and I'm talking about not just uh, teachers to students because there have been cases of uh, teachers verbally abusing students for wearing the hijab or, you know, uh, threatening them or, you know, uh, using some sort of slurs against them uh -huh. uh, just for being Muslim. Uh, but we're also seeing it from the students themselves. So if you yes. recall the uh, hijab uh, controversy in Karnataka state, uh, where they actually banned students from wearing them to school, uh, there are a lot of Hindu students who marched in protest against their own classmates, including young women who said uh, we're protesting the fact that these girls are trying to wear the hijab to school. Um, it's this product of deep normalization of hatred in India. Uh, we're seeing it in every single sector of society, in the workplace, at school, in the government, in the media. The media is a big one on social media. Yes. Uh, there's really no condemnation coming from the government. There's no real accountability for anyone because, you know, when these videos go viral, yes, you'll have people condemning them, but you also have people sharing it in celebration, saying this is a great thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is a very deep-rooted problem and the government would have to do a lot more than addressing one or two viral cases in order to solve the problem. Yeah. Now, the Ayoya Temple um, inauguration has been faced with criticism from other Hindus as well, especially Hindu leaders who argue that it violates their scriptures. Um, and we're seeing a similar situation when we look at the Israeli-Palestine um, war and the internal divisions that we see here reveals within the, you know, the Hindu community, um, these the specific divisions. It's not so enhanced um, amongst Christians or uh, uh, um, toward Christians, I should say. Um, but with Muslims, it seems to be um, much more um, on a different level altogether, almost as if they want to destroy and demonize mm -hmm. the Muslim community. How does mm -hmm. this distortion of historical narratives contribute to the current atmosphere of religious intolerance in India? Yeah, so... Again, in order to understand that, I think we need to start with the lens that this history is viewed through, because India has a very long history. It's millennia and millennia of um, different kingdoms, different groups uh, getting along, warring with each other, conquering, conquest, uh, invaders come, invaders go. Um, and so the lens that specifically the Muslims are viewed through needs to be understood. That lens is that of Hindu supremacy. Um, and very quickly for the audience, I'll just define uh uh, Hindutva or uh, Hindu supremacy, as I've been referring uh -huh. to it. Um, this is an ideology that that assumes that Hindus are the true Indians. It's uh, actually inspired by European ethno-fascist movements in the 20th century um, mm. in the World War II era, including Nazism um, and the fascism of Mussolini. And uh, it assumes that Hindus being the true Indians means that everyone else is an invader, or a foreigner and therefore they need to be expelled from India or subjected to genocide or erasure. And from that ideology, that form of thinking is where we see 
this common Hindu supremacist uh, propaganda trope that the Muslim is not native to India. The Muslim is an outsider. The Muslim is a conqueror. And uh, because of this lens, all of Muslim history that we're talking about centuries of Mughal rule is demonized and treated as this period of time where with absolutely no nuance to it, uh, Hindus were nearly wiped out, converted by the sword. Uh, they had all their temples destroyed. Uh, Muslims came in with the explicit goal of eradicating Hinduism, and it was a time of great suffering, etc. Uh, now, any historian who is not affiliated with the BJP or with the Hindutva movement, uh, and I'm talking about scholars all over the world, will tell you that this is absolutely nonsense. Um, as I just mentioned, India has a long history of yes. different religious groups. You know, they've uh, been in contact with each other, and all of them are very much a part of Indian society, cultural fabric, uh, and history. Um, but for the Hindutva supporter, um, the Muslim is seen as a colonizer, as, you know, even more demonized to an extent uh, than the British. And so... This is how uh, the narrative that Muslims are temple destroyers came to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's one article in The Guardian where a historian that was interviewed actually said that there is no evidence for the fact that uh, the Mughals went on a spree of destroying temples. Uh, some BJP leaders claimed there were thousands and thousands of temples destroyed. Uh, this one researcher in the quote in The Guardian, he mentioned that there's only concrete evidence for around a dozen, a couple dozen temples being destroyed. And that is as part of like several centuries of uh, Muslim rule. Yes. Uh, so Safa, you still with us? Supremacists, uh, they actually take this, these myths and run. Um, and that's why they're able to target mosques, like any mosque in the country. They're able to look at it and say that probably has a temple under it if it's uh, past a certain age. And that's how it, unfortunately, it affects people to this day. Mm. Now, you know, you mentioned the rewriting of history to demonize Muslims. It sounds almost as if, as you mentioned, white supremacy and the, the great replacement theory, um, just mm -hmm. being, you know, uh, in a different, in a different situation as such. Now, some people see the temple inauguration as a political ploy, particularly because of the 2024 general elections coming up. How does this event, um, play into the broader political landscape and what implications might it have on the upcoming elections? So Modi and the BJP have a uh, very common go-to tactic for elections, uh, both regional and national elections. Um, and this has been documented by several news outlets around the world, and that is hate speech. Uh, the BJP relies on hate speech to polarize the voter base, to get more Hindu votes, to demonize the Muslim base, um, and to demonize the opposition for saying, look, these people are pandering to terrorists, uh, jihadists, whatever. Um, so due to that uh, uh, spike in hate speech around election season um, and, you know, this this trend that they've set of like using the demonization of Muslims to grow in political power. Um, it's really no surprise that people are saying, like, look, the, the Ram Temple is a part of that uh, that election campaign because everything about it, uh, from the way it's being celebrated by Hindu mobs in the streets, um, to the way BJP leaders are talking about it, to the way Hindu militant leaders are talking about it. All of this is showing that this is a monument that does not really symbolize much more than Modi's campaign of hatred to yes. erase the country's pluralistic, 
uh, democratic uh, legacy and turn it into a Hindu ethno state. Um, and that, of course, is going to have bearing on the upcoming elections because now they've fulfilled one of their greatest campaign promises, mm -hmm. uh, which is the building of the temple itself. Uh, what that means for the Muslim community is, unfortunately, that this demonization will only escalate. Um, Muslims are already seeing from the ground uh, the increased um, fervor that Hindu mobs are having in targeting the Muslim community. Uh, there have been several riots. There have been several cases of just horrific uh, mob attacks on Muslim individuals. Yes. Um, and this is such a sensitive time with just like just knowing that the elections are coming up. It is seeming like, you know, the BJP is escalating uh, its calls to create a Hindu state. Mm -hmm. It does look like they are working towards that goal. And we are hoping that, you know, the international community speaks out strongly against it uh, before these repeated calls for violence and genocide of Muslims by the BJP supporters uh, can come into being. Mm -hmm. But talking about the international community, you're not hearing much about this. I mean, what we've seen in reports is, is just, you know, the BJP celebrated the inauguration of the Ram Mandir. Um, and that's about it. You're not, you're not hearing much about what is happening with regards to the human rights abuses, the civil, civil rights decline. Um, and how much of global pressure needs to be put on them or before um, something escalates to, to a, you know, to such a serious nature that it becomes uh, a situation that becomes untenable for the Muslim minority in the country. Yeah, so with regards to international media, uh, Al Jazeera, the BBC, and in some cases, the New York Times, The Guardian is also a good example. They've all had coverage of the Hindutva movement, about the BJP's democratic uh, backsliding. Um, so there has been somewhat decent coverage of um, the you know the political landscape that india is in and how that relates to the building of the ram temple uh but i do think the urgency uh that you know was put forth by these media outlets for other conflicts in the world like you know ukraine is a good example it's not there to the same degree uh which does worry uh you know us as muslims because this is a very severe situation where you're having like almost daily calls for genocide in India now yes. and that's not nearly reported enough um, with regards to what the international community needs to do. Um, I'm speaking from the United States. Uh, our government unfortunately um, decided that instead of condemning Modi and you know ostracizing him mm -hmm. that they would allow him to speak in front of Congress. Yes. Um, so there is, you know, India is a key ally to a lot of, you know, Western democratic nations being quote unquote the world's largest democracy. Uh, that label, you know, some might argue that it no longer applies, but it is, you know, an important um, strategic partner, uh, important uh, partner in trade, et cetera, and maintaining stability in the region, all those things. Um, however, there uh, is a uh, part of the U.S. Uh, government. There's a U.S. government body. Um, it is called the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. Um, and they have been calling repeatedly for the U.S. State Department to recognize India as a country of particular concern uh, for its egregious and ongoing uh, violations of uh, the human rights of religious minorities. And they have repeatedly called for sanctions 
on the Indian government. They have called uh, for visa bans for major uh, Indian politicians who have incited violence. Um, they have called for uh, closer monitoring of the situation for international leaders to intervene, to talk to Prime Minister Modi, uh, to let him know that this is unacceptable. Um, none of that, of course, has been done by the U.S. government, um, at least not publicly. But uh, I think those recommendations are a very good place to start. India needs to see outside pressure um, in the form of these visa bans. Um, these people should not be allowed to travel internationally. They yes. should be treated as insiders of uh, violence and genocide. Um, you know, these these types of measures that can be taken, whatever measures can be taken, should be taken um, in order to prevent uh, the world's largest democracy from losing that title. Absolutely. Now, looking ahead, what do you foresee as the potential long-term consequences of the temple's inauguration on the socio-religious fabric of India? Um, and what steps can be taken to promote inclusivity rather and tolerance in the face of this growing religious polarization within this, the country? Yeah. So beginning with the impact of the temple long-term, I do believe that the temple is, is almost like the product of a much deeper problem, which is the deep uh, radicalization of a large portion of the Indian population. Um, and some of them are radicalized to the point of violence. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, this is yes. a grave enough problem that the violence has become mainstream, normalized everything. Uh, we're seeing that the mainstream media has been compared to Radio Rwanda prior to the, Ru the Rwandan genocide. Mm. Uh, that's also a major problem. Um, but then you also have the everyday people who might consider themselves to be liberal even, or, you know, they might say, I'm not political. And yet uh, the demonization of Muslims is so mainstream that you will see people parroting the Hindutva narratives of history, saying like, oh, yes, well, Muslims were conquerors. Well, Muslims were, you know, spreading Islam by the sword in India, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these types of, uh, of radicalization, you know, the soft radicalization, uh, the soft forms of hatred, if you will, these things are very deeply entrenched now in Indian society. It will take a very long time to undo that damage. And I've spoken to Indian activists who say they're especially concerned with the radicalization of young people yes. um, because you'll see them, they'll see videos of kids in, you know, middle school, high school, marching, uh, chanting uh, in celebration of the Barbary Mosque demolition. You'll see them, you know, parroting these absolutely horrific statements. You'll see them marching against their own classmates um, and their uh constitutional rights to dress how they want. And it's honestly like quite disturbing. Uh, there is also uh, the problem of, you know, these these militant groups are just allowed to function freely. See, all these things need to be addressed. Uh, they, it will take quite a, a while uh, for India to recover from this. What I do think that the country can start doing now um, to at least try and walk back some of this damage is by First of all, uh, working to debunk Hindu supremacist propaganda, um, you know, raising that voice to the rest of the world so that they can hear uh, what's happening. Um, and of course, you know, the diaspora is also amplifying those voices um, there. I mean, they've been they've been talking about this for a very long time. And I think, you know, that responsibility falls more on the diaspora to listen and to uh, talk about it more so that they can get the international attention that they need on the situation. Um, 
but I do, there, there's a, a poet um, in India, his name is Hussein Haidri. Mm -hmm. uh, he actually said something that really resonated with me when he was speaking about uh, the situation in India. He said the answer, um, uh, you know, the, the solution is not love in the face of uh, these types of tragedies, it's justice. And so it is the responsibility of the Indian government uh, to seek justice for all these countless uh, Muslims who have been demonized, who have lost lives, who have lost family members, uh, who have lost their basic human rights, their homes, uh, their security, their, their peace of mind, their mental health, to these extreme politics of dehumanization um, and genocidal rhetoric. It, the onus falls on the majority community to work towards reconciliation, uh, to work towards unlearning that type of hatred against mm. uh, vulnerable minorities. Um, there is a lot of responsibility on the Indian government to prosecute the people who are inciting violence and who are encouraging the demonization to continue. And that includes people within the government who need to be held accountable uh, for their crimes uh, for against not just the Muslim community, but the Christian community, all minorities and against Indian democracy as a whole. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, with the BJP in power, we I suppose that's going to if they and from what we hear, they are going to make it back into power with these elections coming up. Um, so we hope and pray that maybe they have a change of heart and see things differently. But other than that, I think it's going to take uh, a bit of uh, changing of their minds in order to get um, the ball rolling for some of the recommendations that you've made. But inshallah, you know, we can only support um, the minorities, especially our Muslim brothers and sisters in India mm -hmm. and elsewhere in the world um, with the oppression that they face. And uh, sadly, um, you know, we, where I am here in Durban, we have um, the largest Indian community outside of India. And yet we all live in basically in harmony. And we've done so since I think the um, having Indians come to South Africa, there may have been a few issues during apartheid, but they've always lived amongst other people in peace and harmony. And there's never been any issue, mm. um, you know. So it's sad when you sit here and, and, and look outside to what's happening in, in the country that many people here in South Africa know as their motherland. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and inshallah, I hope that that uh, I, I think a lot of our my parents and you know the the generations who are a bit older than myself, they remember a time when India um, was you know closer to that vision that you know, Mahatma Gandhi had yes. um, and the the freedom fighters had uh, for their motherland. Um, they remember a time where it didn't matter what religion you were and it didn't matter what your name was. It didn't matter. Um, any of those things. It was about like, I'm Indian first. Mm -hmm. And so we hope that inshallah, India can return to those roots. Inshallah. Well, Safa, shukran for your time this evening. We do appreciate it. Um, and for your very early morning call to uh, do the show. With us. I'm <laughs> very, very grateful for that. I hope you have a lovely day going forward, inshallah. And uh, it would be nice to talk to you. So we'll keep in touch, inshallah. Inshallah. Jazakallah khair for having me on. Ameen. Shukran for being with us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. That was Safa Ahmed, the Associate Director of Media Communications at the Indian American Muslim Council, exploring the aftermath of the Ram Mandir inauguration and the distressing attacks on Indian Muslims.